page 1192 in one of those blue Bibles. Also, we've got those message notes at the end of your aisle. So if you're sitting next to that pile of message notes, if you could grab that pile for me and pass that down to others in your rows so they can fill in some blanks and jot down some notes along the way. Those message notes are a wonderful way to allow God's Word to sink deeply in your mind and heart today. So pass those message notes down, get out a pen or pencil, make sure you have your Bibles in hand. Today's message is Noah, I'm an impactor. We're in Hebrews 11, starting in verse 7. We're going to talk about Noah today, who of course is best known for building that ark. But you may be surprised to know that Noah, the man, the ark builder, the legend, is better known in Hebrews 11 verse 7 for building a couple other things. There were two other things that Noah built that were actually more important than building that wood boat. Two things more important than building that ark. And interestingly, God calls you and me today to build those exact same two things. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 7. If you're there, say amen. Here we go. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, this is your day. It's the Lord's day and this day does not surprise you. You knew about it long, long ago. And Father, here we are in this place as a church, and we believe one of the purposes you've given us as a church is to learn your word better and better. So Lord, here we are. We pray, O God, that you would teach us over these next few minutes. We believe in our heart of hearts that our lives have purpose and meaning. Lord, you have us here for a purpose today. You have meaning behind our church attendance today. So speak to us, O God. Teach us. Open our minds and hearts to what you want to say to us today. And Lord, I thank you that your word today will help us love you better and help you serve, help us serve you better in our generation for the glory of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Last Sunday, we spent a, a few minutes answering the question, what is faith? The Bible tackles this question head on in Verse 1 of this chapter, this whole chapter really is a beautiful description of what faith looks like in the real world is God gives us dozens of examples of men and women who lived out their faith. And that very first verse in the first part of this chapter, Hebrews 11 verse 1, gives us that beautiful description as it says in verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. For every follower of Jesus Christ, faith serves as a solid foundation for our Christianity. That solid foundation of our faith is not dependent upon our five senses, is it? You can think of gravity as an example. We can't see gravity. We can't hear gravity. We can't smell or taste gravity. But the evidence for gravity's existence is compelling, is it not? It's compelling. And so in faith, we believe in what we cannot see when it comes to gravity. The same goes for our faith in God. We can't see God. We can't hear God. We can't taste or smell God. But the evidence for God's existence is compelling, is it not? And so in faith, 
we as Christians believe in the one who we cannot see. Remember how Warren Wearsby defines biblical faith. We looked at this last Sunday. His definition is so good. He says, true Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and consequences. When it comes to real faith, belief and obedience, as we saw last time, they go hand in hand, don't they? If you claim to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you do not obey Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you really don't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do you? If you say, yes, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to obey the commands of Jesus Christ, that is evidence that your faith is real. Because faith and obedience always go hand in hand. If I only trust in God when circumstances are favorable, I don't really trust in God. If I only trust God when my family and my friends are accepting and supportive of my faith and not critical of it, then I really don't trust God, do I? Faith always, always includes obedience. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances And in spite of consequences. So let me ask you the question of the hour. Did Noah demonstrate this kind of Bible faith? And the answer is? Without a doubt, right? Absolutely. That's why he's in this faith chapter. He demonstrated a confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and in spite of consequences. Hebrews 11.7 is a rather short verse, but look at that verse again. Hebrews 11.7, that word faith is used three times in this short little verse. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned this world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Three times faith is used in that one verse of Noah. Now, I'd like you to... Turn back in your Bibles, please, to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, because I'd like to share with you this morning the backstory of how Noah became that great man of faith. And so we'll be in Genesis chapter 6, where the story of Noah really begins in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be starting in verse 5 together. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, I want you to see this backstory on how Noah became that great man of faith. Says starting in verse 5 The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I have created, from the face of the earth. Men and animals, Creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, let me ask you, why did God send the flood? Why did God send the flood? If you were to ask people these days that question, why did God send the flood? The answer that I think would be most common is something like this. God sent the flood because He was angry with mankind. God had had it up to here 
with humans. And he wanted nothing to do with them anymore. And so God decided in his fury and in his anger and his rage to wipe them out across the face of the earth. But if you look at this passage we just read, look again at verse 6. I've got to tell you, verse 6 was kind of haunting me this last week. It was heavy on my heart. It simply says, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Does this sound like an angry, vindictive God to you? Me neither. It says that God, his heart was filled with pain, and he was grieved that he had made man. Now, this kind of blew me away. I don't remember ever having learned this before. But in one of the commentaries I was looking at, it pointed out that this word grieved, used in verses 6 and 7, is the same Hebrew word that's used in Genesis 3.16. What's going on in Genesis 3.16? God is speaking to Eve after she's eaten of the forbidden fruit, and God tells Eve that her pain in childbearing will be greatly increased. She will experience intense pain in childbearing. So think about this, ladies. The pain that you experienced when giving birth to your child is the same kind of pain that God feels in His heart when He sees humankind turn towards sin and sell themselves out to sin. Now, many of you ladies can think back to that day you gave birth and there you were in that bed in the hospital in the delivery area and the pain was intensifying and then you had that nurse come into the room and ask you that stupid question and that stupid question goes kind of like this on a scale of one to ten one being just a little bit of pain and ten being the most intense excruciating pain you've ever felt How is your pain level right now? And you from that bed, your eyes get this big. It's a 10! Epidural! 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 Ladies, ever been there? Try to consider what God's Word is saying to us here. The level of pain, ladies, that you experienced in giving birth is the kind of pain God feels when His most precious creation Remember those first days, six days of creation. God created the universe, all the suns and all the stars and all the moons and all the asteroids. And He sculpts this beautiful little planet called Earth. And it's the perfect environment to support life in the universe. And and He creates the giraffes and the aardvarks and the the little dogs and the cats and the the wolves and the tigers and the uh, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! All of that God creates. And then at the culmination of that creation, at the end of the sixth day, God creates man and woman distinct from everything else in creation. Man and woman are created in the image of God. In His own likeness. His most precious creation. Created in His image, not just to live on the earth, but to display His glory throughout the earth. To display His beauty throughout all creation. To display the glory of God. Display His strength and His power and His mercy and His grace and His love throughout all creation. And just ten generations into humankind, as we get to the generation of Noah, God looks at His most precious creation and His heart is grieved that He made man. 
and he's feeling that level 10 pain. Had someone go to, gone to God in the days of Noah and asked him that question, God, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being just a little bit of pain and 10 being the most intense pain you've ever felt, how is your pain level as you look at humankind right now? And God would have said, hands down, it's a 10. It's a 10. Romans 1 describes a a downward spiral of sin that has happened over the course of human history. Mankind has a nasty habit of going from bad to worse. And if we look at those first six chapters of Genesis, we see clear evidence of this. You'll see this downward spiral of sin over the course of those first ten generations of mankind leading up to Noah's day. As time passed, people's sin became more severe and more depraved and more warped and more wicked. The first sin of the first two humans, you remember what it was? The very first sin Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit. And from our vantage point today, we look at Adam and Eve's first sin and we say, big deal. They ate some fruit. That's not that big of a deal. The reason we think it's not that big of a deal is because we've been so desensitized by the wickedness of sin around us in our day. We don't realize how wicked that was in God's sight. But if you think it's not a big deal eating the fruit, look what happens in just one chapter. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 4 verse 8, it's the second generation of humans and Cain murders his brother. That's kind of a big leap, I think, from eating some fruit that you're not supposed to eat to murdering your own brother. That happens in just one chapter. But you go from Genesis chapter 4 verse 8 and you fast forward just about 15 verses to Genesis 4.23. By the time we get to Genesis 4.23, it's the seventh generation of humankind and already polygamy is rampant and murder is rampant across the face of the earth. It didn't take very long for that downward spiral of sin to get to rock bottom. And according to Genesis 6 verse 5, By the time we get to Noah's day, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I know about you, but as I read those words, I can't help but wonder if we're in that same situation today in the United States of America, in our country, in our culture. You see, number one, our nation's sexual perversion must grieve the heart of God. Our nation's sexual perversion must grieve the heart of God. Premarital sex and adultery and homosexuality and transgenderism are commonplace and accepted as normal today in 2019. For the first time in the history of America, we have a candidate for president in a major political party who not only is gay but married to another man running for the highest office in the land. It must grieve the heart of God. Most Americans think that's perfectly fine. But it's not perfectly fine with God, is it? It's not perfectly fine with the God of Scripture. Most Americans seem fine with our multi-billion dollar porn industry that peddles sexual perversion, not just across our nation, but across the face of the earth over the Internet. Pulling tens of millions of men and women into a life of addiction to porn and exploiting Hundreds of thousands of women and even girls along the way. Number two, our nation's violence must grieve God's heart. Murders have become commonplace not only in our inner cities, but in our suburbs and even in our rural areas. And don't even get me started on murder as it relates to the unborn child 
or in this nation some one million babies are aborted in their mother's womb every single year. And a large part of America stands up and celebrates Planned Parenthood who is responsible for 300,000 plus of those every year. And our Americans celebrate that we have choice to end the life of babies in their mother's wombs. God's heart must break and grieve over the violence in our nation. Number three, our nation's spiritual apathy must grieve God's heart. Most Americans know about Jesus and they know about heaven and hell. Most Americans call themselves Christian, but they live their lives as practical atheists. They may say, I believe in Jesus, but their lives are pretty much indistinguishable from an atheist or agnostic. They live their lives as if there were no God, as if there were no heaven and hell. As God witnesses our perversion and hears our filthy language and sees the wicked things and the thoughts of our hearts, His heart must be filled with pain in 2019 as He looks at the United States of America. Well, if you, like me, are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I think it's high time that you and I step it up. It's high time that we step it up. And we do in our generation... What Noah did in his generation. Noah was in the world, but he wasn't of the world, was he? Say it with me. Noah was in the world, but he wasn't of the world. Everyone, Noah was in the world, but he was not of the world. Look again at verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of this pagan, depraved, wicked generation... Whereas God looked down at men and women and teenagers and children and it seemed so clear that every inclination, every thought of his heart was evil all the time. As God went from east to west looking to and fro for even one person whose heart was fully devoted to him in the midst of this depraved and wicked generation, God saw Noah and Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It goes on to say Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Let's look at each of those quickly. It says he was a righteous man. That word righteous, when you see it in the Bible, it's really just a fancy word that means right relationship. That's what righteous means. It means right relationship. So when you read of someone being righteous before God, it means that person has a right relationship with God. And most of the time when it says that someone in Scripture is righteous, they not only have a right relationship with God, they also have right relationships with other people. And so Noah had a right relationship with God. Number two, he was blameless among the people of his time. The word blameless does not mean sinless. Noah was not 100% sin-free. He had some sin in his life. What blameless means is pure, spotless, unblemished. Some translate it as mature. So if you think of that word uh, blameless being mature and unblemished, consider this. That word unblemished, same word used here in Genesis 6, that same word unblemished is used 51 times in the Old Testament of animals that were appropriate for sacrifice in the Jewish sacrificial system. So remember, those of you that have studied some of those odd laws in Leviticus, before Jesus came, the Jewish people, they had to shed blood in order to somehow try to cover their sin. And so they were slaughtering goats and sheep and rams left and right. 
And so God had some specifications, some rules for what kind of animal they could choose. And so he made it very clear you couldn't choose a sheep that had broken legs. You couldn't choose a sheep that had oozing sores on it. And you couldn't choose a sheep that had some outward blemishes on its exterior that were plain to see. And so in the same way, when God speaks of Noah being blameless or unblemished, Noah was one that as you looked at his life, if you knew Noah, or even if you just knew him in passing, there was nothing glaring in his life that was sinful. As people looked at Noah, even as his family and friends looked at Noah, there's nothing they could pinpoint and say, that's a reoccurring habitual sin that he's dealing with. He was blameless among his generation. Number three, Noah walked with God. We talked about this a little bit last week, remember, about Enoch. Noah was one who walked with God. Unlike Jonah, when God told him to do something, Jonah went in the opposite direction. Not Noah. Noah walked with God. He didn't run from God. His life wasn't a constant battle of the wills against God. So let's apply these verses from Genesis 6 to our lives. Sadly, we've seen that our generation in the United States of America in the year 2019 sadly mirrors the generation of Noah in a whole lot of ways. So I want to ask you a few questions to see if we stand out in our generation like Noah stood out in his. Number one, have I found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Have I found favor in the eyes of the Lord? If you're not sure your answer to that question, we'll talk about that more in a moment. Have you found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Question number two, do I have a right relationship with God and with others? Do I have right relationships with God and others? Remember, that's what it means to be righteous. You have right relationships with God and others. Number three, is my current life unblemished? Or are there glaring sins in my life that are plain to see? Is my life unblemished or are there glaring sins? And then the fourth question, am I living life on my terms or am I walking with God? Am I living life on my terms or am I working with God? Now, I'd like to suggest to you that all four of these questions are interconnected. I want to suggest to you all four of these questions are interconnected and all grounded in Bible faith. Faith springs forth each of these wonderful qualities that we see in Noah. I'm going to put this little diagram of sorts on the screen for you because sometimes for me a picture is worth a thousand words and this helped me kind of clarify this progression to becoming a man of faith, living out his faith, being blessed by God that we see here in Genesis 6 and see revisited in Hebrews chapter 11. So you look at the top of your screen, it says, obedient faith leads to God's favor. And what is the New Testament's favorite word for God's favor? It's right there. Grace. Don't you love that word, grace? It simply means God's favor. So, obedient faith leads to God's favor. But if we go to the next part of this little diagram, put up the next one for us, please. We see that if you do not have obedient faith, but instead have disobedient unbelief, that leads to God's grief and pain. And so obedient faith leads to God's favor, His grace. Disobedient unbelief leads to God's grief and pain. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So obedient faith is the key to pleasing Him and winning His favor. I'd like you to repeat this after me, please. Repeat this. God loves it 
when I place my trust in Him and prove it by obeying Him. One more time. God loves it when I place my trust in Him and prove it by obeying Him. Turn to the person next to you. Tell them, God loves it when I place my trust in Him and prove it by obeying Him. Amen? Obedient faith curries God's favor and His grace. And what happens when a man or a woman or a child falls under the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ? What happens? God blesses us with a right relationship with God, does He not? So how can I have a right relationship with God? There's only one way. You cannot have a right relationship with God unless you fall under the grace of Jesus Christ. And you will not fall under the grace of Jesus Christ unless you're ready to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how it works. As I put my faith in Christ, Jesus puts His grace on me. As I put my faith in Christ, Christ places His grace on me. The two go hand in hand, faith and grace. And as you look at that first diagram, obedient faith leads to God's favor and His grace, which leads to that right relationship, which leads always to gain. It always leads to gain. When we're in a right relationship with God, we gain everything that really matters. We gain forgiveness. We gain purpose. We gain peace. We gain hope. We gain joy. We gain the gift of heaven. We gain the relationship with the God who created us. And we gain a relationship with the One who died on that cross because He loves us more than life itself. We have everything to gain if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. But look at the results of disobedient unbelief. Disobedient unbelief leads to God's grief and pain. I don't know about you, but I do not want my sin to bring God to a level 10 pain. How about you? I don't want God to experience a level 10 pain because of my sin. That sin leads to God's grief and pain. It leads to broken relationships with God and others. And that always brings loss. The first six chapters of Genesis demonstrate that whenever human beings sin, that sin always causes human beings to lose something. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they ate the forbidden fruit, they lost the Garden of Eden and they lost their innocence. In Genesis 4, when Cain sinned, he lost his family and he lost his livelihood and he was driven from his homeland. In Genesis chapters 6 and 7, when all humanity sinned, God sent that global flood and they lost not only their lives, but they lost the earth. Every time we see sin in the first six chapters, people always lose something. Please never forget this. Sin always promises gain, but always delivers loss. It's the truth of Scripture. Sin always promises gain, but always delivers loss. To put it another way, sin always promises to give us something good, but it always, always, always takes away something that's even better. That's what sin does. And we all know, those of us that have been Christians for a while, that we have an enemy of our souls and his name is Satan. And Satan is a lion booger. And Satan is so good at coming to people and letting them believe that if they simply carry out this one itty-bitty little sin, it'll be so worth it. It'll bring so much pleasure. It'll bring so much enjoyment. And he is a liar when he tells you that. 
He's the father of lies, isn't he? He'll come and try to convince you that it's worth it if you sin. But I'm telling you, when we sin, the cost of that sin is always far greater than any temporary pleasure that sin may bring to us. Now let's head back to Hebrews 11.7 and take a final look at what it says about Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. But by his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Despite the fact that Noah had to build the largest wood boat ever built by anyone up to that point in history, you realize that ark was 150 yards long, the length of one and a half football fields. And he built this thing out of wood and tar. And he built it over the course of a hundred years in the middle of a desert. So you better believe that his neighbors were coming by every day and doing something like this. <laughs> what an idiot. What's that guy doing? Building a huge boat in the middle of nowhere? For a hundred years, he kept faithfully building and building and building. And he's best known in history for building that boat. But in the hall of faith here in Hebrews chapter 11, he's better known in God's hall of faith for building two other things. Number one, Noah built a godly character. He built a godly character. Noah chose faith. He chose to place his trust in God. And as he chose to place his trust in God and prove that by obeying God, he began to walk with God. And live that right relationship with God out. And he was blameless among those in his generation. All because he chose to walk by faith and not by sight. He chose to obey God despite the circumstances and despite the consequences. And Noah built a godly character. And when God came into his life and when God covered him with grace and when God gave him a right relationship with his creator, God worked with Noah to make sure that he was building a godly character. And the second way that Noah stands out as a builder, even more important than building that boat, Noah built a godly family. He built a godly family. I love how it's put in Hebrews 11, verse 7. It says, In holy fear, Noah built an ark, don't miss those final four words, to save his family. Maybe you've missed that before. I kind of have missed that in the past. Why did he build the ark? Because God told him to. Well, that's true. But according to Hebrews 11:7, he built an ark to save his family. And I want to suggest to you today, parents, that one of the greatest building projects that you can ever undertake is to build a spiritual ark for your kids. Build a spiritual ark for your kids. What does that mean? You make sure that your kids are sheltered as much as possible from the pull of this world that will pull them toward loss. That will pull them toward sin. That will pull them toward broken relationships with God and others. And that means parents and grandparents, we need to step it up when it comes to making sure that in our own homes, under our own roofs, when we have the kids and grandkids right there with us, we do our very best to read God's Word and teach them about prayer. We need to be reading God's Word and praying with our kids and grandkids every time they're under our roof. 
Every day we should be making that a priority. We need to teach our kids about the priority of prayer in God's Word. That's part of building a spiritual ark. Part of building a spiritual ark is making sure that they're shielded from the pull of this world by what comes through on the Internet in your home. Parents, if you're not doing it already, you need to screen what your kids are doing on the Internet. You need to censor what your kids are doing on the Internet in your own home. If you're not doing it already, you need to screen and censor what's coming across your TV screen, what's coming across the music that's played in your house, what's coming across the radio, what's coming across the cell phones. You need to shield and guard your kids and grandkids to the best of your ability from the sinful pull of this world. Most of you understand, because I've said it before on more than one occasion, that the millennial generation... Young adults right now in their 20s and 30s, it's the most unreached, unchurched generation in the history of America. It's the most unreached, unchurched generation in the history of America. And parents who are in this millennial generation are raising the current generation of kids and teenagers. They're considered part of Generation Z, those that are teen and younger. And Generation Z, the initial statistics coming out are that they are even more unchurched and even more unreached than their parents' generation, the millennials. And that should frighten every Christian in this room. And that should give us a, an impetus to do everything within our power to do what God has called us to do in this location in the city of Victorville. As I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, we look out that window and we see the mission field. God did not bring us to this location because it's about us. He brought us to this location because it's about them. And so as we build a spiritual ark for our kids, we do our best to teach them God's Word and teach them how to pray and shield them from the pull of this world. But there's one other thing we have to do that's absolutely critical. And that is to bring our kids and grandkids to church. Our kids and grandkids need to be in church. And I want to challenge you today, church, to make sure that your kids and grandkids, to the best of your ability, are here next Sunday. I am pumped up about next Sunday. For starters, it's our baptism Sunday. Amen? Next Sunday, here at Impact, we're going to have our first big baptism service right after the service out there in the amphitheater. We're going to set up our portable baptistry. And it looks like right now we're going to have some 8 to 10 being baptized next week. A few of those are in this room right now. Amen. And we're not just having a baptism service next week. We're going to have an extra spiritual impact during the service as well. Patrick and our staff and I have been talking over the past week or so. We are putting together an impactful service at 10 a.m. right here in this room so that we can pray for those who have needs. And so we're going to take our prayers to the next level next week. We're going to have a message that's centered on the good news of Jesus Christ. And guess what's going to go on in back while we're doing that in this room at 10 a.m.? In back, we're going to have a special time for our kids. Uh, we've got a little something. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Next week is Superhero Sunday. Superhero Sunday. Well, what does that mean? Right now, our kids are getting excited back in the children's wing because Miss Christie and her team are telling them, make sure next week you come and you bring your friends because you can dress up next week as your favorite superhero. And so we'll have Batman coming in next week, and we'll have Superman and Captain Marvel, and the kids are going to come back, and well, that's nice and all. What's the point? The point is this. Next slide. As the kids are here in their favorite superhero costumes, Miss Christie and her team are going to teach them that Jesus Christ 
is our superhero. He's the one. He's the one who is the true superhero. And so please, I beg of you, I encourage you today, invite at least two young families with you to church next week. Because I want kids here to hear that message that Jesus Christ is our superhero. I want kids in the most unreached, unchurched generation in the history of America to hear the message of Jesus Christ. Would you do me a favor in front of you, in that chair in front of you, we've got some strategically placed invitation cards. And isn't that interesting that they got placed in your chairs this morning? Huh, what a coincidence. The challenge is for everyone in this room over the next week to take those two invitation cards and invite two young families. Grandparents, bring your grandkids to church next week. Parents, bring your kids to church next week. Join us next week as we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We're going to share it in this room. And we're going to share it in our children's wing. And I guarantee you, if you bring in your friends and family who are this close to making a decision for Christ, you know what's going to happen, right? They're going to see at least eight to ten people out there making a stand and getting baptized. And they will be saying, Despite who's watching, God, the angels, or any person in front of me, I have made the decision, and today I'm making it clear, that I have decided to follow Jesus. And as they see others make that decision to follow Jesus next week, don't you just know in your heart of hearts that some of your friends and family and neighbors are going to be inspired to make that exact same decision? Next Sunday... Next Sunday is one of the main reasons we are here in this school every week. In the long run, if our kids trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, they have nothing to lose and everything to gain. I just can't help but say this one last thing before I pray. I've got four daughters. I had the thought yesterday as I was making my way through my sermon notes and preparing for today. I had the thought down the road when my girls are all grown, of an angel of the Lord coming to me and saying something like this, Dane, I just want you to know, as the parent of your daughter, that your daughter has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want you to know that as your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, looks on at your daughter's life, He sees one that has a right relationship with God. He sees a young woman who is blameless, among other women in her generation. And the Lord Jesus Christ sees a young woman who walks with God. I tell you as a father, if I were to hear those words, it would cause my heart to dance. And parents and grandparents, I know it would do the same for you. Isn't that our greatest desire? To see kids walking with God. And we may think here at Impact Christian Church, That we don't have the ability to make a huge impact in the world. But we do have the ability to make a huge impact in the lives of those that live in the Victor Valley. And see many kids, teenagers, and adults make that decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And to be able to stand with Paul and say, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Heavenly Father, thank You for the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I pray, O God, that you would light a fire under us over these next seven days to invite those who need to be here. And when they come in, we will love on them, we will serve them, and we will share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Lord, may we partner with you this week to point others to Christ. And I pray for especially those, Lord, in this room today that grab those cards from the chair in front of them who haven't handed out a single card yet. This week is the week. Give them boldness. Lead them to those that need to accept Christ and need to come to church. And may we take a stand for you in our generation and lead others to do the same. Amen.